Well, this has been a tough week for us all. There's lots of questions about how long are we going to need to continue with physical isolation? Some provinces are saying, oh, we can start moving back into things already. Others are saying, well, we better wait a little bit longer. Let's listen to our frontline workers. There's an awful lot of uncertainty. And uncertainty, I know you know this, uncertainty is stressful. And for us here in Canada, this, we've had an even more stressful time, I think, because we woke up Monday morning to the news that Nova Scotia, in a night of terror, had 22 people murdered by a deranged man dressed in an RCMP uniform and driving in a look-alike RCMP cruiser. He'd gone on this senseless, brutal, and savage killing spree. And so we're shaken. And this is a time of crisis in Canada, and the future looks uncertain. And in the news, there's lots of speculation. Are we headed toward a financial depression? Or how long will unemployment last? And will, how high will it go? How long will COVID-19 bring sickness and death and physical isolation? And throughout the world, there are changing political alliances that threaten peace. So this is a real uncertain time. There's growing fear that some political leader somewhere might threaten a nuclear attack and who knows where all that could end. So the question today is this, how do we as a society live unless we have hope for the future? Do you have hope for the future in the face of what's happening in our world today? And there's a need to have hope and to have some kind of reason to believe that things are going to be at least okay. And in the age of enlightenment, which began in the 17th century with that famous French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes and his famous cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, a whole new way of thinking about society began. And the idea developed that if we get enough education, if we get enough knowledge, um, and if we try harder and harder, we'll make human progress and eventually we'll, we'll get to this sort of utopian place where good things are always happening. And of course, that whole idea came into a, a lot of conflict with the beginning of the last century. You know, first of all, there was World War I in which nine million soldiers and seven million civilians were killed. And immediately on the heels of that, was the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. Soldiers returning from the First World War spread this virus all over the world. And at the end of it, 500 million people had been infected by the Spanish flu virus and 50 million had died. After that, as though that wasn't enough bad news, after that came the Great Depression of 1929, the result of millions of people losing all of their money and they were impoverished. And the only thing that brought them out of that was something even worse, and that was World War II and the deadliest conflict in human history. Somewhere between 70 and 85 million people died, many of whom were civilians. In World War II, um, there were massacres, there were genocides, including the Holocaust, strategic bombings, premeditated death from starvation and disease, and the only use of nuclear weapons in a war. No wonder. That by 1945, as the hostilities were ended, many people looked at the brutality of the war and the devastation of the depression, the millions killed in the Spanish flu epidemic, the worst, uh, the First World War, and they wondered, where can we find hope? What, what can we trust in? 
we began to become a more secular society and our hope is based you know on those things that we put our trust in like science and politics and capitalism and consumerism but sometimes in moments like we're going through we wonder where's the real hope how can i have hope today and we desperately try to hold on to the idea that with enough education with enough work day by day we can make the world a better place and we've kind of learned to turn a blind eye to our biggest problems so we just try to push them off to one side like the ever increasing world debt or the pollution that's endangering everybody everywhere and rising sea levels and increasing murder rates and the loss of truth because of things like fake news and when we look at an incident like what happened in nova scotia and the uncertainty of the day you start to question human nature are we really capable of building a great society on our own are we capable of doing good and when you look at the results of the last century and all of the things that happened the answer seems to be no that maybe we need some help in this and secular hope is leading us in the wrong direction and the grounds for secular hope that everything's going to get better it is getting better don't seem to be showing evidence of truth so you ask why do you say life has no meaning and it's because the secularist view is that there is no meaning to life, that once you die, that's the end of everything. Well, in the secular view, where there is no truth, where there is no good or evil, all life will one day be extinguished. And so ultimately, life doesn't matter. And it's, it's interesting because you can argue, well, you can live a good life doing good things, great things like, say, Mother Teresa or somebody like that. Or you can cause pain, great pain and suffering. I don't know, a name that comes to mind is Joseph Mengele. And one day it'll all be over. And will it really matter whether you did good or bad? Well, if there's nothing more after this life, then maybe it doesn't matter. But if you know a deeper truth, one that's based on very solid evidence, you gain a reality, a truth that there is hope, that there is reasonable hope, that Christianity offer, offers that hope, that there's something greater than death. And we need hope in our world today. We always, we always have needed hope. So let me tell you a story of some people that have gone, completely lost their hope and how they found hope again. And this is that story of the road to Emmaus that happened 2000 years ago on the very first uh, Resurrection Sunday. And these two people were walking west from Jerusalem. It was late in the day. They were walking toward the setting sun. And as they walked, they were discussing the terrible events of the last 72 hours. And they were both followers of this great teacher and prophet named Jesus. And he'd made claims that he was more than that, that he was the chosen one of God, that he was the son of God. He was God come to earth to heal us. And many had become open to this idea. They were believing that this was the truth because they watched him. They'd seen the miracles that he performed. They saw the way he healed people, healed the sick. They saw the way that he stood up for the poor and the powerless, for children and the elderly. And the people loved him. He was very popular, a very real kind of person. And then three days before this event on the road to Emmaus, after he and his friends had had supper, they'd gone with him across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he seemed very agitated, very worried. And he was speaking about his death. And it was dark by then, and he went to pray. 
and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And when he came back, his disciples had fallen asleep. And then suddenly some soldiers arrived and they arrested Jesus and they took him away. That night there was a kangaroo court. Jesus was sentenced to death on a cross, the death of a criminal. Some of the people who were watching said, as he hung on the cross, well, you know, this guy, he saved others. He claimed to be the Holy One of God. Let's see if he can save himself, because he says he can save us. Well, of course, he didn't come down from the cross. No one saved him, at least not in the way we expected. He died. He was so dead. And then in the morning, three days later, the women, followers of his, went to the tomb so that they could finish the job of anointing his body for death. And when they got to the tomb, Jesus was gone. The body wasn't there. Nobody, nobody expected that. There is some reliable eyewitness reports of the events of that morning. Mark in chapter 16 says that the text tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, went early in the morning and they bought spices to anoint the body. So that, that day, they went to buy the spices early in the morning. So this was in the morning of, after Jesus' death, two days later, three days later, sorry. And one minute, you know, he'd been preaching the gospel. He'd been having dinner with his friends. And the next minute, he was arrested and taken away. So that in the space of 24 hours, he was dead. And nobody was prepared for that. So the women had to go and purchase the spices to anoint Jesus' body that morning. And the events were happening so quickly that they couldn't keep up with it all. You know, emotionally, they were, they were devastated. You can imagine it. The shock, no time to process the death, the fear, the anger, the stress. Before the events of the crucifixion, his followers thought that this was the Messiah. This was, they were following the right one. But then when he died on the cross, they thought, well, clearly we were wrong. Dead men can't possibly be the chosen one of God. They'd seen him die. It was horrible. Everyone expected that he would demonstrate that he was the Messiah, but so quickly he was dead. And they were following now as Nicodemus, who was one of the governing members of the Sanhedrin, and Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, as they carried the body to the tomb so that they could place it in there. And they did the first anointing of the, of the body, you know, which was sacrificial. And so it was all so fast, all with no time in between, no time to think. Here he was, supposed to be the king of kings. They called him my Lord, and now he was dead. And they watched as these two men hurriedly anointed the body, and they were all in shock. And Jesus' followers spent the next two nights, and there's recorded ideas about all of this, the next two nights in shock. This movement that they thought they were a part of had been destroyed. There was no Messiah. There was no hope. It was all over, and it sure didn't end well. And they were all afraid. They were afraid because they thought the next thing was they were going to be arrested by the Jewish leaders. They were afraid that they would end up on a cross like Jesus did. It only stands to reason, doesn't it? You know, you lock up and get rid of the main leader, and then you go after some of his closest followers. But the disciples have to do something. They have to go in the morning and anoint the body after the, um, after the first morning. So the women go. And they walk down to the tomb and they're wondering, who's going to roll away that big stone? Because they'd seen this large stone rolled into place in the front entrance to the tomb. And when they got there, they found the stone had been rolled away. And they looked into the tomb 
and it was empty. And as one modern minister pointed out, not one single one of them assumed the resurrection. Not one of them. They asked someone that they met, what have you done with the body? They said, if you've taken the Lord or stolen the body, let us know. And when they looked into the tomb, they assumed exactly what you or I would have assumed, that somebody had taken the body, that the women weren't hyper-spiritual or something like that, that thought, oh, everything that happens is, you know, another miracle of God. They were, they were very realistic people. They knew that dead people don't come back to life. That's a fact of life. Dead people stay dead. There's not one person who can do that. Well, maybe there's one. So the women, they go back to the disciples, the men, the men who were too afraid to go out, and they say to them, somebody has taken the body and we don't know where they've put it. We don't even know who's done this. But the tomb is empty and the body is gone. And Luke, who researched the life and death of Jesus very carefully, very meticulously, says that the women were so confused and upset and worried about what had happened that a couple of the disciples ran to see what they were talking about. Because it, it just seemed to them, and this is what Luke says, it seemed to them that this was complete nonsense. Now, you may only go to church once in a while, or you may be used to going to church, but you don't go anymore. Or maybe you think that there's no evidence for all of this. But here's something you need to know. If you don't believe in the resurrection, or if you don't think Jesus rose from the dead, you're not alone. You're in good company. Because on that first resurrection morning, none of the disciples believed in the resurrection. Jesus' friends felt the same way that morning that they discovered the body was gone. Nobody assumed that he'd risen. And Peter, another one of the disciples, ran to the tomb and found that it was empty, um, had said and, uh, that, that, that they left thinking that Jesus was not alive, but that the Jewish and Roman officials or, or Roman officials had taken the body. This is an important piece of evidence because, you know, if, if you are writing fake news about this, would you have written yourself in there as the people who got it all wrong and lost faith and did nothing courageous and all looked like they were terribly afraid? Probably you wouldn't. You'd write yourself in there as a positive person who said, we knew he was going to rise from the dead. But they didn't write it that way. They told the truth. And they also told the truth about what happened a little later. These weren't superstitious people. There was no reason to, to keep this belief, this trust in Jesus alive, because he was dead. And they thought, well, this is the end of the movement. And in our story, this person Cleopas and another disciple, some people think that the other disciple is Cleopas's wife, but we're not sure. They were leaving town, getting out of Jerusalem, headed toward this little town of Emmaus. And they were talking about what happened. You gotta realize they had lost all hope because hope had died when Jesus' body was lying there lifeless and placed in the tomb. They'd waited in Jerusalem and they knew it was over and they decided they were just gonna walk away from the hope that they had. And a stranger was walking along that road too and he joined them and he says to them, and, and of course you and I know this was Jesus because we've read this story just a few minutes ago. He says to them, um, what were you talking about? And Cleopas says to him, <laughs> you must be kidding me. Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't have the idea of what things have taken place during these last few days? 
And Jesus asked him, and you could just, like, I could just see him having sort of this little twinkle in his eye as he asks us, oh, what things? And they reply, well, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and before all people. And this, what happened was our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and he was crucified. Don't you know this? But we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. And, you know, besides all that, it's now the third day since these things took place. We thought something was going to happen, but nothing did. And moreover, the women from our group, well, they went to the tomb early in the morning. And when they didn't find the body there, they came back and they told us this wild and crazy thing. They told us that they'd seen this vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said. They didn't see him either. So you can see like their hope is lost. They're packing up and moving out. And then Jesus stops them and he says this. Oh, how foolish you are and so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Wasn't it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all through the, what we call the Old Testament, he interpreted them the things about himself in all of the scriptures. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to hear all of that? And it's the story of the res restoration of hope in Cleopas, in the other disciple, in all of us, really. Their eyes were open. They could suddenly see what they hadn't seen before. And something solid to believe in, evidence of God. And then they recognized Jesus in the midst of them all. And they were so convinced of all that was happening that they returned to Jerusalem and they discovered the disciples there now had a renewed hope because Jesus had visited them too. Well, you, you might say, well, Howard, this is just a tall tale. This is a fable. This didn't really happen. N.T. Wright is one of the most respected scholars in the world today in history and theology. I remember attending some of his lectures. He's the most amazing writer and speaker. And N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is just 900 pages all about the resurrection and the comprehensive examination of the evidence of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he examines the statements of the people, multiple people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And it's really interesting to note that, you know, in response to N.T. Wright's book, lots of people who were pretty well-renowned skeptics or downright atheists have changed their mind about the reality of something amazing happening on that resurrection morning. Like that there's evidence that this wasn't just a hallucination or this wasn't a, a myth that was made up, but it was something to do with the truth and that Christianity is based on facts. And one of the strongest pieces of evidence is the fact that the disciples are transformed from these people who are afraid, who had said, well, I guess it's all over. There is no, he wasn't who he said he was. We were just all fools. They go from that to this strong position of saying, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. They, they know it in the deepest part of who they are, that Jesus is alive. 
well, why, why would they think that unless they'd seen something, unless they'd encountered this risen Lord? And, and it goes deeper than that because all but one of those disciples was willing to die some of the pretty horrible, painful deaths, crucified upside down, all sorts of things. They were willing to die because they had this conviction Jesus was alive and that God had walked on earth and that he brought us all hope. Another is the research that shows that belief in Jesus' resurrection grew really quickly because others had a chance to see the evidence for themselves. You know, 500 people at one time saw the risen Lord and the gospel writers are the reporters of all of this firsthand information. And the, the Bible isn't, this part of the Bible isn't written, you know, two or 300 years later, giving time for a myth to grow up, but it was written within 20 years of Jesus' death. If you're trusting in God, then you have hope. You're walking in hope. You can have hope as tiny as a little mustard seed, but it's transformative because you're basing your hope on truth and on the facts. Peter writes, through Jesus and on the cross and proven through the resurrection, you've come to trust in God who raised Jesus from the death, from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now you've purified your souls, your way of thinking, by your obedience to the truth, and that you live a genuine mutual love, loving one another deeply from the heart. And through all of this, you are born again. It's that idea that seeing the risen Lord or understanding that the reports of the risen Lord are, can be relied on transforms us from the inside out. And suddenly, instead of the secular view where everything ends at death, we know that life doesn't end then. Instead of the secular view of we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're going to trust in all these other things, which often fail us. We trust in God who is never going to fail us, who is always there. We trust in God who's been through suffering and pain and so understands our suffering and pain. God doesn't promise us that everything is going to be rosy. Everything's going to be perfect all the time. No. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but don't walk alone. Walk with hope. Walk with Christ in the middle of your life. Walk knowing that God loves you. The World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic on the 11th of March, and they had all kinds of reasons why you should trust them and believe them that something was wrong. And we did, and we know the, the truth of all of that. And now we need to take a look at the evidence from Christ, from his resurrection. It's great evidence, and you can know and trust in that, and you can know the risen Lord in your heart. We're going to take a time to pray now, and then... Um, and just, I just hope you have a chance, whether, whether you're, this is new to you for the first time or whether, you know, you're thinking, I've always wondered about that, but I've, I've found it hard to believe. You can trust in this. So let's pray. Dear God, we praise you and thank you for this amazing thing that came to pass all those years ago where our Lord and Savior Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead, physically rose from the dead, really rose from the dead. And that that gives us hope, hope for the whole world, hope for our own lives. And it gives us peace in knowing Jesus. I just pray that you'll 
make that all more and more of a reality in our hearts and minds each day. And we ask this in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen.